This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Okay, uh, here today with Guy Goodwin Gill, who's the acting director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law in Sydney, at the University of New South Wales, and before that, a professor at Oxford at the Refugee Studies Centre. In uh, in Oxford, uh, United Kingdom. No, I was never at the Refugee Studies Centre. I was. He was never at the Refugee <laughs> Studies Centre. We will immediately correct that. He was just one of the leading authorities on refugee law. Here we have it, Goodwin Gill, uh, on refugee law. Uh, uh, but he didn't have a chaired position at Oxford. Um, anyway, guy, great for you. Good to, to be spend here, a few Alex. minutes Thank with you. Thank you so much. And I know that you're at work on a project now, which is of uh, uh, really vital importance in Australia and and I think has real implications around the world as well on state responsibility uh, and individual uh, liability for harms that are done to refugees, asylum seekers and migrants. I wanted to take a few minutes to talk with you about that. So why don't you describe the scope of the project first and yeah. get into it. Um, thank you. I mean, as you probably know, as many people know, Australia has a draconian policy with regard to those who seek to arrive in Australia by boat. And this has been draconian in particular since 2012-2013 when the government introduced an interception policy and then followed by a transportation policy. So it stops boats coming and then it takes those whom it picks up and it deposits them either in Papua New Guinea on Manus Island or in Nauru. And that raises very interesting questions about the responsibility of the state of Australia for those people. Uh, I think part of the policy was uh, driven by a desire to distance Australia as far as it could from its responsibility, but international law doesn't put up with that sort of, of practice, and there's no doubt that Australia is in principle responsible for those people. Uh, the responsibility doesn't come to an end when they're in Papua New Guinea or Nauru, uh, in large measure because of the facts. Australia pays for their detention, uh, it contracts with companies to provide certain services, uh, many Australian personnel are present on both of the, in both those countries to oversee uh, what happens to those refugees, asylum seekers and migrants. Now what has happened, and it's not surprising because the, the Australia has experienced in this regard before from which it might have drawn on, is that those subject to indefinite detention not infrequently suffer abuse, abusive treatment or serious psychological harm. And that's indeed what has happened to many of those who've been incarcerated on Manus Island or in Nauru. To the extent that already the, the government, although it pretends not to have admitted liability, it has paid 70, 70 million dollars, Australian dollars, to just over 1,900 of those who were detained for the physical and psychological harm which they've suffered uh, during detention. What's Australia's position on this in terms of their liability? How do they read international law? Well, they, cl they claim many things. They haven't actually denied that they are responsible for the individuals intercepted, although they've hinted that, in particular now, that the detention facility on Manus Island has actually been closed. It's now Papua New Guinea's problem. Papua New Guinea certainly doesn't see it that way. They see it as very much a residual problem for Australia to deal with. Um, we haven't seen, or I haven't seen, any agreement, for example, under which Papua New Guinea has said, yes, we accept responsibility of those individuals. And as a matter of international law, it's doubtful that that would be necessarily be valid indeed. So the question we next have to ask ourselves is even while we might confidently say, yes, Australia is responsible in international law for what it has done vis-a-vis -vis these individuals, what happens next? Uh, if there is mistreatment, ill-treatment, is there any further liability that might be invoked? Can individuals, for example, sue in tort? Yes, they've done that. 
uh, can they can they require prosecution? And that I think is a, an interesting question for the future because I do think that perhaps the next generation of human rights protection has got to be, as it were, less civil, less tortious, and more criminal. And after all, there are crimes in international law which, in particular countries which recognise the principle of universal jurisdiction, might be inclined to follow up. So before we get to the, the criminal side of this, on, on the civil side, you mentioned there was a tort case brought in Australian courts. Are there any international courts that would be open to civil claims? No, not to my knowledge, not at all. And even the what courts would be open to criminal jurisdiction as well, that is, 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 is in doubt. The, uh, the legal clinic at Stanford has sent a letter to the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court claiming that Australia is guilty of crimes against humanity or at least should be investigated for crimes against humanity. In full disclosure, I should indicate that I was one of the signatories of that, that letter. So. And although it was an interesting brief, I didn't sign it. Uh, it was an interesting brief. I thought it put the facts and the evidence very powerfully together. But it was on the legal side that I had problems because under the ICC statute, as you know, under Article 8, uh, there has to be it, the, the, the treatment in question or the acts in question have to be part of a systematic attack on a civilian population. And I had serious reservations about whether that is an argument that could be forced through on this occasion. So if it's not the ICC under your, your reading of the ICC statute, then uh, what would it mean then when you said that the court could exercise universal jurisdiction? How would that work? There are several countries which recognize that their, that their obligation, for example, to pursue torturers and those who may have committed other cruel or inhuman treatment may be prosecuted in their courts. Not, not every country recognizes that. And there are clearly serious obstacles in the way of prosecuting an individual who's not a citizen or resident for an offense which he or she may have committed in a distant land. Um, it has happened on occasion. Uh, there's one classic case in the United Kingdom where an Afghan refugee one day recognized in the street a warlord who had tortured him while he was in Afghanistan. He informed the police, inquiries were launched, and that warlord was prosecuted with the Old Bailey, uh, convicted and sentenced to prison. But as you can imagine, getting the evidence, uh, examining or cross-examining witnesses in a, in, a, in a case like that is not the easiest thing to do. And is the cause of action at that point a domestic cause of action under domestic law? It's under, criminal yeah, law it's or under is the, there an international yeah, criminal I mean, law? The United Kingdom has incorporated, for example, the Geneva Conventions, the Additional Protocols and the Convention Against Torture. So there are, it is domestic law, but under the UK system, which is, is so-called dualist, there has to be legislation in order to give the basis for a criminal prosecution. Could you bring that kind of claim in an Australian court? I think if that were to happen, if anyone were to talk about it in Australia, the government would promptly pass a law saying no jurisdiction. Uh, and that is the problem, because it's very unlikely that an Australian court would prosecute or a prosecutor would launch proceedings against an Australian official in an Australian court for acts committed in pursuit of government policy. Mm -hmm. What do you think the future of, of Australian asylum policy is? How long will this no boats policy stay in place? Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, that's a very difficult question to answer because I think that both the government and the opposition have effectively painted themselves into corners from which they now can't get out. And as soon as they perhaps, either of them starts talking about a slightly different policy, the media, the extreme media, tends to come down on them uh, like a ton of bricks. And they are terrified, as politicians in many countries are, they are terrified of losing the vote. So I think it's going to take a lot of courage uh, to, to, to get out of that mold. I think there is some new thinking going on in the opposition at the moment because this po present policy is phenomenally expensive disregarding the damage that's done to people. It's phenomenally expensive. And I, and I think they are seriously looking for a way out of it. Uh, <clears throat> sadly, I mean, what, what, what is the basis for it? A certain paranoid approach to 
uh, the arrival of boats. And I think there, that there's an element in, of that. They are fearful that if they allow boats in, then all of them will end, end up in Australia. In the past, though, they've managed to deal with that, process, that, that, that possibility. So I said no reason why they shouldn't again in the future. So one of President Trump's first phone calls as president was to the Australian Prime Minister, as you know, and, and apparently was a bit heated, and he said that the deal that would have sent some of the, the detainees uh, to the United States uh, was one of the dumbest ideas he had ever heard of. But apparently the White House has changed on that, and there has been some movement of some of the assignments. Since September, there's been quite a lot. In fact, I think just short of 200 now, I think another 50 or so were approved for, for, transport, for uh, transport to the, the U.S. just in the, couple, the last couple of weeks. It's a slow process, but it is, it is going ahead. And I mean, the fact is also that those detained, I mean, I, as we know from previous examinations, have been, for the most part, 80-90% found to be refugees. I mean, it's, 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 they're not opportunists, they're not opportunistic migrants, they are refugees. And that, I think, puts Australia again in a quandary. It's always made, underlined the point that it's not sending anyone back to their country of origin. It's insisted it's not going to refool anyone. Because it's not providing or opening a pathway to a solution either. It went into this policy, into this practice, without doing the groundwork. It, you know, it might have been able to say, look, you know, west of the world, we have this thing about boat arrivals. Uh, if you help us out, um, if you take the people we intercept, we'll triple our refugee intake, we'll quadruple our contribution to UNHCR. They might have got some feedback on that, but as it is, um, the rest of the world says, well, why should we do, you know, for you what we do for ourselves anyway? Weren't there approaches to Cambodia and to Malaysia? Cambodia, Cambodia was, was one approach, which was, again, if you think about it, this is a pretty unrealistic approach to, as it were, create out of nothing a resettlement opportunity country in Cambodia of all places, which has major difficulties. It, it, it's, it's a country which is struggling towards democratic representative government. It's still a heavily mined country. It is, you know, it, it is not a, a, a totally safe place, not a place that people would necessarily elect or want to go for, and understandably, and that came to nothing. The government spent, I think, 30 million in, in sweetening the deal with Cambodia, and I believe the total is of five refugees went there, of whom one remains. They, the rest have gone elsewhere. Malaysia is an interesting deal. That one was, um, th under that deal, Australia was going to accept 4,000 refugees from Malaysia, in return for which Malaysia would readmit 800 of those refugees or take on those refugees who'd been intercepted. Uh, and there are pluses and minuses in that deal. I mean, there were, it might have worked. It was struck down by the High Court because, in the High Court of Australia's view, Malaysia. Uh, not being a party to the 1951 convention, was unable to provide that necessary level of protection which they thought was essential. So I'm wondering to what extent you think the Australian practices are, have had an influence around the world. I'm thinking about the recent uh, Israeli policy of uh, deporting asylum seekers mm -hmm. not to the countries they came from, not to Eritrea yeah. primarily, uh, but rather to Rwanda uh, and beyond. Um, do you think the Australian practice was a Help, help them think that through, or what do you? How, how do you evaluate the Israeli practice? I think the Israeli situation is a total mess. I don't think they knew what they were doing, quite frankly. Um, and the latest news out of Rwanda, for a start, is not is not the happiest news either. If we're thinking about um, finding a solution, safety, dignity, opportunities for livelihood, and so forth, uh, I do not know what they were thinking. And there is, of course, within Israel, there is a lot of opposition. Um, both to the policy of practice that was announced and to alternatives. Um, they're in a quandary, and it's rather sad given that, you know, that in fact, 
Israel was, has, uh, has a lot to uh, owe the 51 Convention on the system of refugee resettlement, that they haven't been able to accept refugees. The, um, the work you've been doing is primarily focuses on civil and criminal liability in the Australian context. Would it have application in other countries around the world or situations you can think of? I think wherever refugees, wherever asylum seekers, wherever migrants are subject to ill-treatment, torture or ill-treatment, um, we need to think about the criminal liability of those responsible for putting them in that situation. And I found a particular sensitivity amongst the military to that prospect of liability. And the Caldor Center conference, I think it was three years ago, we had the former chief of the defense staff who did express serious concern about the potential for his, the men and women under his command being held criminally responsible for implementing the policies of, of the government, forcibly returning people to situations at which they were at risk. And I do tend to find that in, in, the, in the dealings I've had with the military, primarily in, in the UK, but also there is that sensitivity to the law, to, law, to obligation, and to the prospect, the possible prospect of prosecution if they cross the line. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Guy, for spending Pleasure. time with us here. Very interesting. And we look forward to the written product that comes out of this. And you will be first on the list. Hopefully advancing, uh, advancing the interests here and the human rights of migrants and asylum seekers and refugees. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Alex.